It is a privilege and honor to be able to bring God's Word to you tonight again. Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel according to John in the 6th chapter. John chapter 6. Some few weeks ago, I had announced my intention to direct our attention uh, to these seven predicated I am utterances of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we find in the Gospel of John. And in these utterances of our Lord, he is addressing repeatedly his self-conscious identity of who he is and what he has come down from heaven to do. And so this evening, we're going to focus our attention upon the first of these seven predicated I am utterances of our Lord Jesus Christ here in John chapter 6 where he says, I am the bread of life. Now in this present context, Jesus has just performed this miracle of feeding the vast multitude, approximately 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And then sensing, according to verse 15, that this crowd intended to come and take him by force and make him a king, our Lord slips away to a mountain alone. His disciples, meanwhile, make use of a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee or the Lake Gennesaret to the other side where Capernaum is. And as they're crossing the sea, you'll remember that's when our Lord Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And our passage picks up the narrative on the other side of the lake. Hear the word of the true and living God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat, boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's seek the face of God in prayer and ask his blessing upon the ministry of this, his holy and infallible word. O Holy Father, we bow in your presence and we pause to marvel afresh that we have this blessed privilege of holding in our hands this Spirit of God breathed infallible transcript of the very words and deeds of our Lord Jesus Christ. And sensing something, O Lord, of the power of these words, we thank you that we are not left in the dark with respect to the great issues of life and death and of the world to come. And as we would focus our attention this evening upon this portion of your blessed word, we cry out earnestly that your spirit would be present in all of our hearts and minds to illuminate your truth. Help us to understand. And Father, that you would bend our wills to do your purpose. Lord, we pray that in this hour, as we open up your word, that you would be pleased to give seed to the sower and bread to the eater to accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. Father, I would ask that as your spirit comes, that he would bind the powers of darkness Father, that you would drive from this place and from everyone listening to my voice, every wicked influence to the end, that your word may run and have free course in all of our hearts. We ask this, O oh God, to your glory and to the good of our never dying souls. For Jesus' sake, amen. I am fairly certain that there is nothing more outlandish and distasteful to the pluralistic society in which we live today than our Lord's absolute exclusive claims regarding himself. He does not present himself in the gospel records as one among many options or even the best of two or three. No, he presents himself repeatedly time and time again as the living Lord from heaven who we are to worship, to adore, to trust, and to serve. 
And throughout all of the gospel records, our Lord unashamedly and self-consciously is found making these unqualified exclusive claims regarding his identity. He declares in this very passage, for example, verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then immediately adds thereafter, I am the bread of life. Regardless of how hard one may strive to shroud these words in ambiguity or seek to reinterpret our Lord's language, there is no way honestly to understand our Lord in any other terms than in this reality that he presents himself and thereby commends himself to men as the Lord come down from heaven. He presents himself as the utterly unique one given to the world by the Father whom we are to worship, adore, trust, serve. Or to express it in yet another way, our Lord presents himself exclusively as heaven's answer to the hunger, to the emptiness that exists within every human heart, whether realized or unrealized. Now, if we are to understand these I am utterances of the Lord Jesus Christ accurately, I would suggest that we need to do so in the light of John's prologue to the gospel, namely the opening 18 verses of John chapter 1. Because these I am utterances, these self-identifying pronouncements of the Lord Jesus Christ come to us not only in the immediate context here, such as close proximity to the feeding of the 5,000 of the multitude and all the rest that follows, but also against the broader panorama and backdrop of the Gospel of John. And in the prologue to John's Gospel, these opening 18 verses, the Apostle introduces us from the very outset of his good news to the essential identity of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, face to face with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And then you have that climactic, breathtaking statement. In verse 14 of chapter 1, And the Word, the eternal Word who was God and who was with God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Therefore, when John brings us face to face with these I am utterances later on in his gospel, he has already prepared us for these staggering statements. They are not given to us then out of the blue. We read them with a prologue of John's gospel in mind. This is precisely what we ought to expect from the one who is the eternal word of God made flesh. And to our secular, humanistic, pluralistic culture, 
Nothing is more despiteful or hateful or outlandish than these unique self-identifying claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is additionally, I think, another reason why our secular pluralistic culture finds our Lord's I am utterances so utterly repulsive and offensive. And it's because in these I am utterances, Jesus is provoking, confronting, challenging, head on the basic fundamental sentiments and assumptions of today's modern culture. And those sentiments and assumptions are, of course, that we're a mere conglomeration of molecules, that we're just a bunch of particles, that we're simply carbon atoms, that we're mere flesh and blood. You see, there's this underlying presupposition in all of the I am utterances of our Lord Jesus, that presupposition is this. That there is an eternal dimension to the human heart. That God has, according to Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, that God has put eternity in our hearts. That there is, as Calvin put it, the presence of an awareness of divinity within the human breast. And this is offensive to the world in which we live. Let us eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. The Christ of biblical revelation stands as an offense to the world's view that we're merely a conglomeration of molecules in search of self-actualization and satisfaction. And as I have been pondering these I am utterances of the Lord Jesus Christ in John's gospel... Over and over in my mind, I have been brought back to the words of Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 2, where there our Lord says through his prophet, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. And you read that and you wonder, what is coming next? What are the heavens to be appalled at? What is so profoundly shocking as to be utterly desolate? For, says the Lord, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Now you see then, it's sad enough that the world lives as though we're just a mere conglomeration of molecules and carbon atoms. But what a tragedy, our Lord is saying, when my own people live as though their life, their satisfaction is to be found in broken pots, in broken cisterns. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. So you see, that is the epitome, that is the ultimate irrationality of sin. It twists and it tangles the mind. And all sanity, spiritually speaking, is lost. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Who in their right mind would do such a thing? 
Well, that's what's happening as a consequence of sin. It results in moral insanity. What the old writers called the noetic effects of sin. That is the effects of sin upon the mind, upon the intellect. And the tragedy of our present day culture is that this moral insanity is not confined to unbelievers but that this is but a reflection of how the church in our own day so often appears to think. But then in the second place, I want you to consider with me the context in which we have this first I am utterance of our Lord. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, with respect to the context, go back to the opening verses, if you will, of chapter 6. Our Lord there has just performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 on this occasion. With five loaves and two fish, we read in verse 14, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And John is careful to give expression then to an encouraging note there. Here are people who appear to be grasping that there is more to this Jesus than that which meets the eye. But then almost immediately thereafter, verse 15, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. Thus our Lord is not taken in. By their apparent interest in him. Their apparent perception then of his true identity. Because John has already informed us at the close of chapter 2. That Jesus had no need that any should testify of man. For he knew what was in man. He was not deceived by this apparent perception of his true identity. This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So when they follow him, verse 25, to the other side of the sea and ask him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Rather than answering the question they ask, our Lord responds by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, it is at this point something very remarkable transpires. And I wonder if you took notice of it when I read it in our hearing. Look at verse 30. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may sit and believe you? What work will you do? Now, think, what had Jesus just done? With no more than five loaves and two fish, 
Our Lord gave thanks for these meager rations and distributed them among the multitude and they ate their fill. It must have been an astounding event to have been party to that miracle of our Lord. And they recognized the extraordinary uh, uh, nature of that miracle. And yet here they are asking him, what work, what sign will you give? What work will you perform? And our Lord has put his finger precisely on the present spiritual state of the multitude. Their real perception of him, of simply viewing the Lord as some kind of perpetual meal ticket. You seek me, he says, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In their minds, they had simply reduced the Lord Jesus to the status of a mere miracle worker who was there simply to meet their physical bodily needs. And so in an attempt to correct this false perception, our Lord addresses them in verse 27 and says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now make no mistake, our Lord is not being insensitive or uncaring. After all, he just fed approximately 5,000 people miraculously. And it comes across as fascinating to me that although Jesus could feed the hungry perpetually, he uses that miracle as an object lesson to point them beyond their physical bodily needs. Our Lord is conscious of a more serious need to which he gives expression in all three of the synoptic gospels as well. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will it profit a man if he has everything he needs for life, but not the one thing he really needs for this present life, as well as the life which is to come? And so we see here, as well as elsewhere in the other Gospels, that our Lord always has in the forefront of his mind this concern for the eternal good of men and women. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures unto everlasting life. And so our Lord's primary concern in the midst of this occasion is to summon them, to invite them to believe in Him. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom God sent. Jesus is hereby drawing their attention now to the center point of revealed religion. He is setting before them the ultimate divine intention behind the whole revelation of God throughout the whole of redemptive history. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. To be sure, there, there's something of an almost surreal aspect 
as to how the crowd responds. And I'm going to look closer at our Lord's I am utterance of verse 35. But I think it's important for us to have a feel for the flow and the dynamic of the narrative in order for us to fully, to appreciate fully what our Lord Jesus is saying. There's this almost surreal element to what the crowd is expressing. What sign will you perform? What work will you do that will persuade us that we may see and believe in you? How does Jesus respond? Verse 32. Truly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. You see, they ask him, what work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert or in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You hear that and you say, that's right. God did. He fed them. He gave them bread from heaven. But notice how Jesus responds to them. Truly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven. They were focused on Moses as the object of their religion. Great Moses. Now, to be sure, Moses was great. But he was simply a servant in God's house, according to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And it is at this point that the narrative begins to take a gigantic leap. The passage now takes this leap. Here it is. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. To which they respond, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now there is here in this in the third place, I think there is a very fascinating literary and linguistic parallel between what we read here and what we read back in chapter 4 of John's Gospel, where Jesus meets the woman at the well, you'll remember. And he speaks to her about living water. And what is her response to the Lord Jesus? Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And you're thinking, what a wonderful opportunity for the Lord Jesus Christ to give her the living water. But what does he do? His response to her is, go call your husband. And you think she's asked for living water. Yes, she has. But she doesn't understand at this point what she has asked for. Not just yet. And you find the parallel of that here at this pivotal point in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Lord, give us this bread always. It sounds so good. So good that people want, that they desire what God has to give. And in a certain sense, it is wonderful. Nevertheless, at the same time, you have to ask the question, do they really want what God has to give? 
And then Jesus utters this saying that stops them dead in their tracks. And it's downhill for the popularity of Jesus all the way to the end of the chapter from this point on. He says, I am the bread of life. And that I am utterance, as we'll see, is the turning point in everything that transpires from here on out. Now these words, I am the bread of life, are words with which we're so familiar, are we not? It's for many one of those early texts that people learn when they first become converted in the Christian faith. It's a breathtaking utterance. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. It, it, it's breathtaking just to hear that sense of self-conscious egocentricity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that he has come from another world to give life to this world. But now step back with me for just a moment. There is here, and this in the fourth place, a presupposition couched in the words of our Lord Jesus. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And the presupposition is this. Our Lord knows that men and women... Boys and girls everywhere are in desperate need of life. That is the presupposition behind these words of our Lord. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now Jesus, mind you, is addressing men and women, boys and girls, whose hearts at this very moment are beating. Their lungs are inhaling and exhaling, but who nonetheless do not have life. They had animation, to be sure, mobility, if you please, but they had no life. That's the presupposition in the words of our Lord. Now here I think it's helpful to ask ourselves, so that we might be reminded afresh, you and I, of the heart of the gospel, the good news. We need to ask ourselves, how can Jesus speak like this? What gives our Lord the right to speak like this? Because what our Lord says here sounds so outlandishly Arrogant and ridiculous to people. After all, I'm not a corpse in the grave. I'm alive and I'm enjoying life. And yet Jesus urges absolutely. I am the bread of life who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. Later on, as we'll see in chapter 10... He says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That is in all of its fullness. So the first thing we need to ask, and this then in the fifth place. What gives Jesus the right to say this? What gives our Lord the right to make this utterance? I am the bread of life. 
Well, it's no mystery because he tells us in verse 27, look at the passage. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures the everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because there is a word of reason. Because this is an explanatory connective. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now what is the function of a seal? The function of a seal is to authorize and to authenticate. Jesus is the Son of Man, the promised one in the seventh chapter of Daniel's prophecy. The Son of Man upon whom God has set his seal. Now I'm not confident at this point that I can offer you a precise exegesis of what our Lord's words mean here. But I strongly suspect that our Lord has in mind at this point the full gamut of his earthly life, beginning with his supernatural conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and the seal given by God the Father to him at his baptism when he commenced his public ministry. You'll recall that John the Baptist says, Look to him upon whom you see the Spirit descending. Those seals of his mighty works, of his miraculous healings, he is declaring that on him, God the Father has manifestly set his seal of approval. And his whole life then is a testimony to the reality of his Father's approval of him as the one sent to give life to the world. So what gives our Lord the right to make this audacious claim? The seal of his heavenly father. You see, it's not only that he is intrinsically and ontologically the son of the living God. And by divine right can make that claim. But he is speaking in his office, moreover, of his mediatorial salvific ministry as the one on whom and in whom the Father is well pleased. And on his saving ministry, his Father has set his seal of approval. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the second thing we need to ask, and this in the sixth place, if you're following in the outline, what then is this life that Jesus has come down from heaven to give to the world, to you and to me? What is this life? It is, Jesus says, and this is outlandish. It is, he says, Myself. He gives himself to the life of the world. When I became a Christian, I remember hearing people preaching and saying various things like, Come to Jesus and Jesus will give you purpose and meaning and significance to your life. And dear people, all of that's true. All of that is absolutely true, but it is not the gospel. 
That is not the gospel. The gospel is not come to Jesus and he will give you this and that and the other. No, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ gives you himself. That is the heart of the gospel. Come to Jesus and he will give you himself. That's the God. He gives you himself in the gospel. He is who and what we, you and I, need. In him, there is meaning and purpose and significance. He himself is the bread of life. And Jesus is using language that was so expressive of that day. In our day, we almost take bread for granted, do we not? And when we get low on bread, we make a quick run to the 7-Eleven, the Minute Market, or the grocery store, whichever is closest. But bread was such a staple of life that nourished and filled you. And if you didn't have it in that day, you went hungry. And here in this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us under the imagery of bread that he has come down from heaven to give us himself. It's as simple as that. And he's telling us, I am the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am, he is saying, the answer to the hunger, to the longing, to the yearning, to the emptiness of every human heart. Because God has set eternity in our hearts. Now, it's very possible that we, you and I today, live in the most affluent society of all of history. We have an overload of virtually everything. At least we do now. We may, we may be lacking given this present pandemic. But we live in a very affluent society and, and yet we live in the most restless, the most dissatisfied, the, the most discontentment all around us. And it's utterly befuddling to me that people are so blind to that. For all of its endeavors and accomplishment, science cannot even begin to tell us who we are. Now, science can tell me what I'm made of, well and good, but I want to know who I am. Perhaps Herman Bovic, the Reformed theologian, expressed it, so simply and so profoundly when he said that man is an enigma and God is the, the only solution can be found in God. But I think there's someone who's even expressed it better than Bavik. I think it was in old Augustine when he prayed to God and said, thou hast formed us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. Well, here's the question I hope that you're asking yourself at this point. How is Jesus my basic necessity? In what sense is Jesus the bread of life? 
What does that actually mean? Well, if we had time, we could treat the entire chapter. Jesus exegetes and explains what he means, especially in verse 50 on to the end of the chapter. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He says, the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This whole passage of John's gospel sets forth our Lord Jesus Christ and herein he is presenting himself as the answer to the longing that is found in every human heart. And in all of this, he is not saying, follow my teaching, embrace my ethic. No, he's saying, eat my broken body and drink my poured out blood. Now, he's not giving us here, dear people, a discourse on the Lord's Supper. Although the Lord's Supper, when we partake of it, is a picture of what our Lord is saying here. The Lord's Supper points to the reality of what our Lord is saying here. Because in these words, our Lord Jesus is referencing his sin-bearing death upon the cross. And he is saying to us, the life that I have come down to give to the world is a life of fellowship and friendship with God. He's telling us that he has come to lay down his life in bearing the sin of a lost and a broken world in order to open up in himself a way back to God. God himself is life. And the life we all need is to be reconciled and restored to our Creator God. By nature, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Not as a martyr to a cause does he die, but as a sin-bearing substitutionary sacrifice in our room instead. He's come to bear the curse for us that we may partake of the blessing. Now, the language is very graphic, is it not? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. And you see, the Lord is telling us that faith is not some kind of nebulous concept. But faith is a life and death trust in the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is mighty to save. Life is found only in Jesus Christ who is the bread of life. Now, as I bring this to a close, I want to do it this way. You may be asking yourself, how do I appropriate Christ to myself? 
how do I partake of Christ in the way that he's been set before us in this passage? Old Augustine has a great answer to that question. He says, why do you prepare teeth and stomach? Believe, he said, and you have eaten already. Let us pray.